Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 15. We've been in the book of Romans now for a long period of time. We're getting towards the end of this study. By the time we finish where we are today in verse 13 of chapter 15, we will have finished talking about this subject of Christian liberty. The end of the book is a lot of personal information on the ministry and the methods of the Apostle Paul. Just a lot of personal interaction between him and the church. It's great material. Not so heavily doctrinal as what we've studied. Very important stuff for us as we study and we think about what we are and who we are as a church. After today, and I didn't digress today to bring a message to you as fathers, because I wanted to finish where we are today in the book of Romans. And then we're going to take a couple of weeks break from what we're studying. We're going to be talking about a lot of different issues this summer as we prepare for our annual meeting. We're talking about eldership. We're talking about who we are as a church. So we're going to be taking a couple of weeks break, and then we'll come back uh, sometime later in the summer. We'll finish up the book of Romans um, eventually someday. I think it's very interesting, though, as we've been talking about Christian liberty, and he gets to the end of this, I want you to notice with me the emphasis today. It's it's this emphasis of rejoicing and singing. We just finished singing. Why do we sing as a church? Why do we take about ten minutes in every worship service, maybe a little more than that, And every week we have five, six songs, various themes, by various authors, by people in various periods of time. Songs that were written like yesterday and songs that were written like hundreds of years ago. And we together in this place sing them. Why do we do that? What is that all about? Let's just think about that today as we think about Christian liberty. And I want you to notice with me, the Apostle Paul, we're going to begin reading a couple verses earlier than what I draw your attention to on the screen, which is verse 8. We're going to start reading in verse 5, Romans 15, because I want to draw a connection. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. That's a musical term. To live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that all of us together with one voice 
we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Now, when he uses the word there, circumcised, let's go back in time in our thinking. He's not just talking about a medical procedure. He is talking, he's using that as a title for a sign of the covenant in Judaism. We have to go all the way back into the Old Testament to trace it. We, we talked about circumcision at various times when he alludes to it in the book of Romans. And I don't want to lay all that groundwork, but when he's doing this, he is talking about people who are in the Jewish covenant. They are Hebrews. And he's using that as a title here. And he's kind of synonymous. And so we could almost insert that. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the Jewish people, those who are in the Jewish covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham. Why did Christ become a servant to those people? Number one, to show that God is truthful. He is trustworthy. What he says he does. So the first reason that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jewish people, was to show, to display something. That word to show there is like, think of the concept of a showroom. Now we're getting away from brick and mortar stores, and we're going now more towards internet stores and e-commerce, but on a website you go to and you, you go to Amazon and they show you something. They want you to see it. They display it. And what he's saying here is God is trying to display that God is trustworthy. He is truthful. Secondly, in order to confirm the promises that were given to the patriarchs, that is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the third reason Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. It wasn't just so it would be a Jewish clique. No, it was because Jesus was, was extending his kingdom and Jesus was building an empire that would encompass all of the nations. And so in order, the third reason Jesus came to the circumcised, to the Jews, was God made a promise through them to Abraham, and it was not just to Abraham and to his physical offspring, it was to his spiritual offspring. All those, all the nations are blessed in believing Abraham. And so he says what? Third reason? So the nations. So all the ethnicities. So all of us Gentiles might glorify God for His what? Mercy. His mercy. We've talked a lot about His mercy and we've studied His mercy. And so God, Jesus Christ, becomes a servant coming to the Jewish people in order to show that God is trustworthy, to confirm the promises, and then to extend God's mercy to all of us. 
And so how does Paul respond? As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles hope. And then his plea, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He says sin. Now let's draw a connection here. The contextual connection is Christian liberty and a servant orientation. Jesus Christ, God, Himself, the second member of the Trinity, becomes a servant for the three reasons that we saw in the text. That is a reminder to us, as we talked about Christian liberty, that it's not just about me, it's not about my freedom, it's not about my rights, but Paul said, every one of my rights is subservient to the greater good of introducing other people to Jesus Christ. And if anything that I do is going to cause somebody to offend, I'm not going to do it. I am going to submit all of my rights to the glory of God and the furtherance of His kingdom. And Jesus then is the great example of that. Because Jesus Himself... God Almighty becomes flesh serving us in order to save us. We sang the song, Amazing Love. Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, that you would die for me? He becomes a servant. And so Jesus lays aside all of his rights, all of his glory, He comes and He lives on this earth. He becomes a servant. He he lives in a humble home. He is rejected of men. He is beaten. He is spat upon. He is crucified. He dies. And so He becomes the great example to us, of us, to us, of how we should live as we follow His example. And it's not just about my rights. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I like. It's about bringing glory to God by serving others. That's the contextual connection between what we see this morning and what we have already studied. The next thing I want you to notice is there are three reasons that Jesus became a servant. We mentioned them already. Number one, it was to show God's truthfulness. God is trustworthy. Number two... It was to confirm the promises that God made with the patriarchs. And then number three, and this really develops where we go this morning in the message today, was it was so that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. For His mercy. 
That God has shown me mercy. God has withheld from me what I deserve. He has extended grace to me, and His grace is a tremendous mercy that in compassion He forgives me, He restores me, He brings me, and He adopts me into His family. And God wanted all of the nations to be a part of His family. And so He brings them to Himself. He brings us to Himself. So there are three reasons that Jesus became a servant. And Paul says... Because of that, I sing. Because of that, I sing. Because God has shown me mercy. Think about this. Mercy understood. Mercy embraced. Mercy trusted in. Mercy believed on. Produced in the Apostle Paul a heart of singing, a heart of praise. Apostle Paul was persecuting Christians. He is on his way to Damascus, seeking those who were followers of Christ to commit them to prison. As he is on the way, with no forethought, planning on his part, no desire to become a follower of Jesus, Jesus knocks him to the ground. He says, you are a chosen vessel unto me. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He is blind is in a house on the street named Straight in Damascus. A man named Ananias comes and lays hands upon him. His eyesight is restored. He is baptized in the name of Jesus. Immediately, he is proclaiming his name. And he is singing. God's mercy made Paul sing. That's why we sing. That's why we take time every Sunday morning in what we do in worship to sing. It is a reflection, it is a remembrance that God has shown me mercy. That God has saved me from my sin. These things are rehearsed to us every week in the message of the song. Just think with me of Psalm 40 for, for just a minute. In Psalm 40, the psalmist David says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now, I'd have to say, usually for me, it's I waited impatiently for the Lord. But I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me. He heard my cry for help. He brought me up out of a desolate pit, out of the muddy clay. He set my feet on a rock. And what did he do? He made my steps secure. That's his mercy. And what did he do? He put a new song in my mouth. A hymn of praise to our God. Many will see, they will fear, they will put their trust in the Lord. Notice with me the evangelistic purpose of singing. 
Many will see, they will fear, they will, they will put their trust in the Lord. So he is waiting patiently for the Lord. He is in a pit of desolation. His feet are in the muddy clay. He is in the miry pit. And God comes to him and he sets his feet upon a rock. He makes his steps secure. And in his mercy, God delivers him. And now there's a new song in the heart and in the mind of David. So he says, sing. Sing. Now, I want you to notice with me, in the verses that we have just read, there are five synonyms that describe what singing is or what it should be for us as a Christian when we sing together. Number one, he says, I will praise you. Notice the word praise. Number two, he says, I will sing to your name. Number three, he says, rejoice. Number four, he says, praise. Number five, he says, extol. Five synonyms that describe to us and for us what we are doing when we sing. We are praising, we are singing, we are rejoicing, we are praising, we are extolling. Now, in the original language, each one of those words is a unique word, an individual word. Although we see in the text there are two places where it's translated with the word praise. In the original language, they're not the same word. We're going to talk about them for a minute. What does he mean when he tells us to do these first? First, he says, we are to praise him. He says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. That Greek word is ekomalageo. Hamalageo just simply means to confess. When you put the prefix E-K, ek, in front of it, the prefix E-K in the Greek language is out of. So it is a confession out of. It is a mouthing. It is a speaking. We'll come back to it in a little bit, but in Romans chapter 10, we already studied this word. Very same word in Romans 10 verse 13 when he says this. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the word can mean praise because it is a praising of God for his glory, but more importantly, he is pointing to something we do with our mouth. We are confessing. It is a joint confession. It is a confession of our faith. I want us to think about that. When we sing songs, we are together, corporately, confessing things. Confessing to the Lord and the world what we believe. And so it is a confession. Number two, he says, sing. That's the Greek word, solo. It's the, um, it, you can see the word psalm there. There's both a noun and a verb in the original language that speaks of psalm. When it's a verb, it means to sing. When it's the noun, it's referring to the song itself. The word itself, solo, means to pluck an instrument. 
And so it's speaking of the instrumentation, not just the singing, not just the words that are sung. It is speaking about the accompaniment of it. The third thing he says is rejoice. This is an interesting word, rejoice. I'll come back to that one in a minute because it's an important one. Next one is praise. just means to be grateful. To be grateful. In Acts chapter 3, that word is used. There's a guy, he's sitting and he's been lame, I think from birth. I should have went back and read the whole chapter. And his friends have carried him to the beautiful gate of the temple daily where he is begging. Peter and John are coming in at the hour of prayer. They see the guy with the cup. Peter and John say, we don't have any silver and gold. Peter says this, what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The man feels his ankles strengthened and he gets up. And it says he begins to walk. And then he begins to leap. And he praises God. Can you put yourself in that situation? You haven't walked. Some guy you've never met walks up to you and says, I don't got any money to give you, but I'll give you this. Get up and walk in the name of Jesus. And you do it. You take your first couple steps to test it. <laughs> and then you jump and you leap and you're praising God. That's the word. Praise, to be grateful, extol, to commend. Draw your attention to the word rejoice. Notice that word. There's a family of words in the Greek language. One of them is the word euphoria. It is the root of the word to rejoice. I put there in parentheses the word Euphrates. Have you ever heard of the Euphrates River? It is the rejoicing river. That's what it means. It is the river of rejoicing. Why? Because it is the fertile crescent and, and so the word Euphrates actually speaks of fertility and the rejoicing. And so the Euphrates River, the, the, the river of fertility, the river of rejoicing, and from it we get this concept in the Greek language of the word euphoria. I like that word better than just the word rejoice. It gives me a different word picture in my mind. He says here, we rejoice. We are euphoric. When was the last time you felt euphoria? Maybe it was when your team won the Super Bowl. And it's just this emotional surge, isn't it? You know what it's like. Euphoria. This word is used... In Luke's account of a story that Jesus told, 
the story of the prodigal son. This boy has left home. He's gone into sin. And dad don't know where he is. The boy comes back. The dad sees him a long way off. He runs to him. He throws his arms around him. He hugs him. He is rejoicing. He is happy. He brings him in. He he kills the fatted calf. They have a party. They have a bash. And the oldest son is off in the corner kind of throwing a pity party and not very happy. Dad goes and talks to him. And he says to him this, Son, it was right that we should make merry. That we should feel euphoria. This dad who has lost his son has all of a sudden seen him come and return. And what is the feeling that he has inside? Euphoria! He is excited. He is merry. You know another place where this word is used? It's used in Exodus 15. Let me take you back there for a minute. In Exodus chapter 15, we have a song that is called the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses is written in response to a specific thing in the history of redemption. The children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They have wandered into the wilderness. And as they have been led by the Lord, they come to a place at the Red Sea. They are hemmed in by mountains. Unbeknownst to them, Pharaoh has gathered an army. He is coming to kill them. He is not coming to take them back. He is coming to kill them. You are a dad, you are a mother, and you have little kids. And you see an army with weaponry and powerful, and you know they are not coming to just take you back. They are not coming to say, oh, we wish you would not have left. They are coming, listen, to kill you. It's like the Russians coming into your village in Ukraine. They are coming to kill you. And you have no hope. You don't know any way out. You think you're all going to die. And it isn't going to be pretty. And Moses says to you, stand still and watch the salvation of the Lord. And God parts the Red Sea. And you all go through. And you get to the other side. And you look back and you see the army coming. What's going to happen? Moses extends his rod. And the water comes in. And it kills them. It kills them. I know that's not politically correct anymore to talk that way. But those people just died. And you're alive. And your kids are alive. 
And you look at that, and you are euphoric. You are not euphoric that those people died in that sense, but you are euphoric that God delivered you. And in Exodus 15, it says this. This is the song. And Miriam, it tells us in the psalm, or in the Exodus, is going through the camp with tambourines with the other women. And they are jumping around. They are ecstatic. They are euphoric. And what are they singing? I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider He threw into the sea. That is euphoria. I will sing unto the Lord. Why? He delivered me. Now, you don't see Egyptians coming in your life. But get this. Every day you live, you are one step, one breath, one day closer whether you know it or not, to an eternity in a lake of fire under the judgment of God. And then you and I fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for our sin, And we are like the pilgrim in the Pilgrim's Progress, the guy who's wandering with that pack on his back and it's weighing you down and you fall into the miry clay and you don't know which way to go. And all of a sudden you come to a hill called Mount Golgotha and you see one crucified for your sin and you believe in Him and you trust in Him. And you are born again and His mercy is revealed to you in your heart and you are saved? And the sentence of death and of judgment is passed? And His mercy is extended? I will sing unto the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. I will sing to the Lord for His mercy. And so this is what we do when we sing. He says, sing his new song to the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His wonderful works among all peoples. For the Lord is great. He is highly praised. He is feared above every other God that can be named. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, don't get drunk with wine. That leads to reckless action. Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make melody. Make music from your heart to the Lord. Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 13, 15, it says, Therefore, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that are doing what? Confessing. We are confessing when we sing. Now, that's the general. Let's talk about some specifics with us. What are we doing when we come? Have you ever heard the little saying, keep it simple, stupid? Ever heard that little saying? Let's think about some stuff for us when we come together and sing. 
for us specifically. I'm not talking about every church in America. I'm not talking about mega church in California, where you came from, or whatever. I'm not just talking about us, who we are. When we come together, what are we trying to do? Okay, here's a couple things I want you to think about. Number one is this keep it scriptural. Stupid. Right? He says, sing to who? His name. So everything we sing, we are desiring to confess who? Jesus Christ. To bring glory to His name. So we're not going to sing stuff that is unscriptural. I'm not going to even mention anything because what does it matter? But I'm just saying, when we pick out songs, when we're learning songs, when we look at the songs that we sing, first thing that we're asking, the message of this song that we sing, does it correctly reflect the truth of God as revealed in Scripture? Keep it scriptural. Stupid. Number two is this. Keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. What do I mean by that? Can we do it? Can we do it? Can our instrumentalists do it? Now, God has blessed us tremendously, hasn't he, with great instrumentalists. We have a wide variety of musicians. For a church our size in the middle of nowhere, we're very blessed. I thank the Lord. It's kind of an ebb and flow at times because people come and they move. All those different things. We try to put it together. But look, you know, we don't, why don't we do canned music you know, and just do, have Matt do the karaoke thing. Why don't we do that? You know why? Because we're a church family. And we studied gifts. And God gifts people in our flock in different ways. And we want to develop our gifts and we want to use our people. That's why we use our instrumentalists. But you know as well as I know, some songs that are out there that you may really like on the radio and I may really like on the radio, eh, we're just not going to get it. Right? It's not going to sound like that here. So we keep it simple for us. Keep it simple, stupid. Here's another one. Keep it singable, stupid. Can we as a congregation master it? You know, you hear something that somebody's doing on the radio there again, and man, it just sounds great. And then you're listening to it, and you're singing along while you're taking a shower, rub-a-dub-dub, and it sounds great in the walls of your shower. And then we come in here, and we try to sing it, and it just sounds like abysmal. Why? Because we just can't sing it. It's a pop song that's made for the radio, and it may be great to praise the Lord, but it doesn't work very good. It's not suited to us as a congregation. So, you know, when we pick out music, you know, I'm sitting in the back and I'm listening, and if we just flub a song, I may think it's a great song, but if we flub it, I put a little X by it, and we probably won't sing it again for a while. Why? Because when we flub a song and we can't sing it well, all it does is discourage us. And we don't praise well with it. I can tell when I get up and preach and you have sung well and praised God well. I can tell the difference. When songs are singable, we do that. Now, so here's a couple of things I want you to think about and I'll quit. It's Father's Day and you guys are ready to go grill. Music that is suited to congregational worship. Here we go. Number one, is it scriptural? 
Is it scriptural? That's the first thing we're going to ask. That's the test. It's not whether it was written yesterday or it was written a hundred years ago or it was written and it was in the Baptist hymnal. That's not the test. It does not matter a hill of beans to me when it was written. It could have been written in the apostolic age. It could have been written last week in New York City. If it's scriptural, that's the deal. Okay? So we're not asking ourselves as a church about the songs that we sing. Is it new or is it old? That is irrelevant. Is it scriptural? Number two, is it unifying? We saw that in the text. Can we with one voice worship and glorify God with it? Number three, we're going to ask questions about our instrumental capability. Can we do it? Right? It's not whether, in some ways, it's not just whether it's scriptural. It's can we do it? Can our instrumentalists play it? If somebody looks at that and says, eh, there is no way I'm going to learn that on God's green earth, then we're probably not going to sing it. T. We're singing to God. Our worship is to an audience of one. We're not singing to each other. We're not singing for each other. Please remember that. We are singing to God. E, does it edify the church? Can we grow with this? And then D, is it doable? I don't even know if that's a word. It's probably not spelled right for sure. Is it doable? Can we do it? Okay, those are the tests that we use to ask if music is suited to congregational worship. And the end result is this. We put our hope in God, and so he says in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 5. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine. If you get drunk with wine... You made a choice to take something into you that you gave the ability to control you in a way that it changed you. You made a choice, you gave up control, and it changed you. Don't get drunk with wine. Be what? Filled with the Spirit. My friend, make a choice. Holy Spirit, fill me. Give up control, and He will do what? Change you. That's the analogy. And when He does it, what do you do? You sing. You teach each other. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you sing and make melody to the Lord. And so he says at the conclusion, may be filled with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us voices to sing, (coughs) that we can make a joyful noise to you, all ye lands. We can serve the Lord with singing. We can come into His presence with rejoicing. Thank you, God, that you are a God of mercy and you are the source of all hope. 
And for that, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Very perfectly would you sing.